Okay, so hi everyone. Today I'll be interviewing Professor Hutchins from the University of Michigan. He is a political science professor who studies a wide array of topics. And um, Professor Hutchins, if you would like to introduce yourself. Yes, thank you, uh, Elizabeth. My name is uh, Professor Vincent Hutchings. I teach at the University of Michigan and I primarily focus on questions of uh, American elections, public opinion and um, voting, as well as attitudes about race um, and race-related policies. All right, so he does focus on um, race and African-American politics, but today in this interview, we will fo be focusing primarily on his work with voting behavior and elections. But if anyone is interested in his other work, you, know, you can definitely check it out on his faculty page on the University of Michigan's website. Okay. But now onto our questions. The first two are a bit more personal. And our first question is just asking you to you know, give a bit of information about your background, your academic journey and all that stuff, if you're comfortable. Oh, absolutely. Um, so very briefly, I'll just say that um, I did my PhD work at uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, so UCLA in the 1990s. And I uh, focused on the same topics there as well before joining the faculty at the um, University of Michigan um, in 1997. Um, I got into an, I had an interest in politics for much of my, I guess, young life, um, in part because there were some politically interesting things going on while I was in my formative years. The uh, run for the presidency for Jesse Jackson in the 1980s, um, the election of, um, let's see, the election of Harold Washington as the first black mayor of Chicago, uh, which was also in the mid 1980s. So a lot of things were going on, a lot of interesting political events, and uh, they just kind of drew me in. And so your interest in politics, it seems like it came on you know, very early. Was it something that you also looked at as a child or a teenager in high school? Oh, that's a good question too, Elizabeth. I think um, my parents weren't, weren't exceptionally political, but they did listen to a lot of talk radio. And so whenever we would take family trips, we'd have the talk radio on and it would be focusing on politics. And so I guess I absorbed it at that time. Um, my parents did read the newspaper every day. So they were a little bit more active in terms of their attentiveness than most, but they weren't dramatically active. And most of my siblings, I have four siblings, uh, they weren't terribly active about or interested in politics either. So I guess I was just a, you know, an outlier, as we would say. Yeah, it's very different from my household because my parents, not well, maybe not my parents, but my dad is very interested in politics and he usually reads the newspaper out loud or just something he found online. And so, and so I'm kind of surrounded by political issues because of my dad. That's good, that's good. I yeah. tried to do that with my children, but I, I'm not sure how much of it uh, you know, caught on. Yeah. I, I would suggest, yeah, starting around when they're a teenager. I don't know if they'd be interested when they're five years old. <laughs> good point, good point. Yeah. So our next questions are going to focus more about Professor Hutchings' work and research. And so he has worked with the American National Election Studies Organization, which um, sort of analyzes elections by conducting surveys with American adults and asking them various questions. And you know, we're not going to dive too in depth into this topic, but he does have, he does talk extensively about 
his work with this organization in a in a video in another video. It's called the ISR Insight Speaker Series, the ANES History and Insights from Recent Surveys. And so it's on YouTube. And if you want to learn more about it um, and just look at it, you can definitely check it out on YouTube. But so, but with your work with this project, I was interested in how did you um, get involved with it? Yes, that's a good question. Just a very brief background on the American National Election Study. <clears throat> Excuse me, it, it was originated uh, essentially in the 1950s here at the University of Michigan as an effort to um, determine why people vote the way they do and what are the factors that contribute to their participation. So now, of course, we live in a world in which surveys are seemingly uh, ubiquitous. Um, but in the 1940s and 50s, they were far more unusual, mostly because they were primarily done either face-to-face -face or in the 50s and 60s over the telephone. Um, so they were, but they were still relatively rare and expensive. Um, the University of Michigan and the originators of the study, primarily uh, Warren Miller, as I think often uh, argued as the originator of the, of the what we call the time series, had the insight not simply to do a survey about the presidential election based on a sample of, of uh, Americans in the contiguous 48 states, but that they would pursue this not just in a particular election cycle, but uh, every election cycle uh, since 1952. And uh, the beauty of that is that by gathering this data, our survey, the ANES, the American National Election Study, has been collecting this data at the presidential level and at congressional midterm levels since 1952. We stopped doing the midterm uh, elections, I think around 2002, but we still have been doing the presidential one. So very, again, very briefly, this means that a researcher or an ordinary citizen, because this data is available for downloading uh, for free at the uh, website, which is just electionstudies.org, which you can go to on Google and find. Um, it allows us to be able to assess how are the voting patterns, what are the gender gaps and other demographic associations with the vote in the 21st century relative to say the 1990s or the 1970s, or yes, even the 1950s. We're able to do that with that data set, which is what we call the time series, precisely because of the insight of Warren Miller and, and others like Angus Campbell and Phil Converse, et cetera, who uh, realized that this would be an amazing data set over time because it would allow us to look back at history and evaluate the changing dynamics of American elections. So uh, the question was, how did I get involved? I, this data set is iconic in my field. It is the primary, uh, and it remains even 60, 70 years somewhat later, the primary data set for people in American politics, it, uh, for scholars who study these questions. So I used it as a, uh, as a graduate student to write my dissertation. Uh, this is before I was hired by the University of Michigan. And then I was fortunate to get a job here. And, um, you know, uh, a, the opportunity arose for me to step in as one of the, what we call the leaders of the program, which is known as the principal investigator. This would be around 2006 or so. And I was happy to do so. Uh, it's a big burden and it's also a big responsibility. But uh, I was kind of an obvious choice in terms of how long I've been on the faculty and the level of expertise that I have. And so uh, I took that responsibility on and I must say I, uh, it was one of the crowning achievements of my career. 
I cycled off the project around 2017, but I was working with it for uh, you know a little over a decade. And I, I thought I was an expert on surveys before I started working on the project. But once I started working and seeing how the proverbial sausage gets made, uh, it was illuminating and it was, uh, it was humbling and learning a lot about the, the difficulties, the trials and tribulations, but also the dedication of the staff and the efforts it takes to produce this uh, iconic data set. One last thing I'll say uh, without filibustering here is that the American National Election Study has been so successful that numerous countries around the world have sought to develop their own time series. And, and many of them have. In fact, there's kind of an organization where we keep in contact in, you know, for what they do in Canada and Great Britain and parts of Europe and parts of Latin America, et cetera. But the oldest and the, uh, the one that started it all is still the American National Election Study. It's the longest time series in uh, the social sciences. Yeah, and so what were some of the highlights of your time with the organization? Maybe some major obstacles or some major achievements you had? Ooh, that's a very good, good question. I guess I'll start with the obstacles or the challenges. We, the, even though our project is nonpartisan, it's paid for by the taxpayers. The National Science Foundation has funded the project, not since its beginning, but since the 1970s. And so, and that has been the case now. So for, I guess about 50 years. Um, and it is a strictly nonpartisan endeavor it, because it is paid for by the taxpayers. Nevertheless, uh, we occasionally in, encounter obstacles on, on Capitol Hill when it comes to the funding. It's an expensive project. Uh, it can cost uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of about three to $4 million to, to do it because it is a face-to-face -face study with the exception of 2020 during the pandemic, of course. But ordinarily we hire local interviewers uh, to interview people face-to-face -face, uh, on the ground in their various communities around the country. So it's an expensive endeavor. Anyway, that's a, just a setup to say that sometimes members of Congress are not so supportive of this effort. They don't maybe like what we uncover and they wanna cut our funding. So at least part of the time I was working on the project, we encountered obstacles with some members of Congress seeking to cut the funding to the National Science Foundation and by implication cut the funding for our project. So it seemed as if our project might actually not move forward uh, when it came to the 2016 study because there was uh, efforts being made by forces in Washington to try to kill the project. Fortunately, those efforts were unsuccessful and we managed to survive, but it wasn't obvious that that was going to happen at the time. So, you know, my job as a social scientist is to try to understand the political and social world, but uh, that effort can sometimes be undermined by forces within that world, which are less interested in understanding what's happening and more interested in, in basically trying to score political points. So that would be one of the downsides. The upsides, uh, one of the things I've learned or one of the great accomplishments, I guess, was we, we uh, were able to um, generate sufficient funding from the National Science Foundation to do what, what are called oversamples, where in addition to getting a sample of the American public, we were uh, given support to uh, boost our sample of participants so that we would have a large, a large enough number of uh, African-Americans and Latinos in order to also study those populations. Because uh, obviously blacks represent about 
12 to 13 percent of the population and uh, Latinos represent represented at the time at least about 17 or 18 percent slightly smaller if you talk about the voter eligible population but in any case those are not small numbers in either case but they're also minorities so if we get a sample of say uh, 2,000 participants you can just do the math yourself and you'll see that we won't have a great many uh, minority members in the study to do analysis on. So the additional, the additional resources allowed us to get what are known as oversamples so we could boost up the number of uh, Blacks and Latinos and assess uh, how members of those groups also view the world. That was relevant, of course, because the both in 2008 with the Obama election and in 2012 with his re-election effort, issues of race and uh, ethnicity were very uh, front and center on the political agenda. So it was important to have resources to evaluate how these communities, Latinos uh, and African-Americans, we also did the study in Spanish, uh, or at least allowed that option for the first time, I believe in 2008 and 2012. So I was very happy having worked on both of those studies, the 08 study, the 2012 study, and then um, the 2016 study. It was, it was uh, important in light of all the things that were going on. Uh, needless to say, 2008 and 2012, were, it, was, it was noteworthy and consequential because of the Obama candidacies. And in 2016, it was noteworthy and consequential because of the historic candidacy of Hillary Clinton as the first female uh, nominee of a major party. And also Donald Trump as the oldest uh, candidate running uh, for the presidential nomination and at that time, uh, also the first and only candidate who had achieved the nomination who had never previously served in government uh, before. We, uh, I'll just end on this point. Um, we have had previous presidents who didn't have experience in elective or appointed office, but usually they had military experience. In fact, they had always had military experience. So because of course the military is part of the government, uh, every previous president or presidential candidate uh, had experience in government until Trump came along. So what everyone thinks about the former president, it was certainly historic and noteworthy, both his candidacy and the candidacy of, uh, of uh, former secretary, uh, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And yeah, I can see how it would be, you know, it's a, it's a very honorable role to be the leader of such a large project, but it does sound very tiresome and, you know, um, you have a lot of responsibility. So I can see how it would, that would be a downside. Yes. And so for one of your books, Democratic Accountability, in which you contend that citizens are well-informed on issues that they care about. You know, I mean, do you think this level of political engagement is enough? Yeah, that's a good, so uh, Elizabeth is referring to the, a book I wrote in uh, the early 2000s um, where uh, we uh, just very quickly to give some context to the question in my response. We know as social scientists, particularly political scientists, that Americans are not terribly informed about political matters. Um, it's just not something that most Americans are all that interested in. And so they're not motivated to gain the requisite knowledge. And in and of itself, that might be fine. In a free society, people have the right to either indulge in politics or not. Uh, so, and that is true, uh, certainly. But the democratic theory, the practice uh, of uh, holding your elected leaders accountable requires on some level uh, 
that the people who vote have at least some minimal level of information in order to evaluate whether their elected officials have uh, behaved in a fashion consistent with their expectations. So the inf information is, an, is a necessary component of uh, democratic theory. The problem is that voters don't often have as much of it as we might like. So one of the things I sought to do in my book was to determine, okay, we already know there's no point in disputing this issue. We already know that voters are not as uh, broadly informed as we might like them to be. The question, however, might be reformed or reframed into do they have sufficient information or at least are there circumstances under which they might gain sufficient information to carry out their democratic, small d democratic duties. And uh, what I found in my book is that there, that there is. So that's a little bit reassuring. It is certainly, there can be no dispute that people are not globally informed about politics, not in the ways that political junkies such as myself uh, happen to be. Indeed, even uh, someone like myself who gets paid to do this for a living, there are huge uh, holes and gaps in my own political knowledge, simply because of the limitations of human cognition. No one can be expert on anything. No one can be expert on every aspect of everything, of anything, I should say. So um, the basic punchline of my book is that when people are particularly concerned about a, range, a, a domain of issues, let's say the elderly and uh, issues involving Medicare or Social Security, would we therefore expect them to be more knowledgeable as a consequence? And the short answer is oftentimes yes. So that is a good thing. We can't all be experts or even uh, approaching expertise on say Medicare or Social Security, but it is nice to know that the people who are particularly dependent on that policy are more motivated than others to learn about what's going on. I could say the same about uh, union issues for union members or uh, knowledge about the state of Israel for uh, Jewish Americans and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, does it work that way? all the time? No. Is that sufficient to keep our democracy working smoothly? Well, maybe not. Um, so I'm not a Pollyanna here. I'm not saying everything is rosy. All I'm saying is that there are circumstances under which even largely ignorant, and I mean that in the neutral sense of the word, uh, there are circumstances under which even ignorant Americans can become more informed, even sufficiently informed, to carry out their duties. Yeah, I, I feel um, like when I look at, when I consider an informed voter, I always think of them as being well-rounded in different topics. Like you said, not being an expert, but just being sufficiently knowledgeable. And it's really hard because at least for climate change, I feel like that's an issue that everyone should care about because it affects everyone, maybe some more than others. But it's just so hard even for me just to read an article to solely dedicate to climate change because I don't find it as interesting as other topics like say voter suppression and so I can like it's really hard to become an informed voter I think oh even yeah with knowledge. That, Elizabeth that is an excellent point we it's so it's easy for those of us who do this for a living to sneer and to you know look down our noses at Americans who can't you know tell you uh, who is the you know, senator who represents their state or the two senators or some other bit of political knowledge, okay? They, Americans aren't gonna score very high on average on these things. Um, but in part, that's because it's very hard to do. The, the example I provide my classes when I teach is uh, to say, look, I, I stand before you as a bona fide card-carrying expert on politics. I have a PhD 
and I've been teaching for uh, decades at this prominent university. Um, but I, but there are plenty of things I don't know, uh, not just in politics, but certainly beyond the domain of politics. Um, so if you were to ask me, ask me myself, I use myself as an example here, you know, can, how much detailed knowledge do you have about anatomy? I mean, don't you need to know about anatomy? I mean, obviously not knowing about anatomy has implications for your health, right? So if you were to present me with a medical textbook written in English and ask me to explain what's going on, I'd, have, I'd struggle mightily because I don't have the background knowledge. It might as well be written in Latin because I'm not an expert in anatomy. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a medical student. I'm not a medical doctor. It, it is, so for people who have expertise in medicine to say, look, I mean, obviously your health is pre, of preeminent uh, uh, importance to you. You obviously need to know how the human body works. Why don't you know how many bones are in the human hand? Why don't you know how the cardiovascular system works? You should know these things, right? Everybody should know this. Well, it turns out I don't know it. And if you were to ask me uh, you know, a test about the particulars of the of human anatomy uh, beyond the rudimentary, I would do very poorly. Okay, so, and I imagine when I say this to my class that most of you, unless you're biology majors, slumming as political science majors, you probably would also uh, do poorly. So bear that example in mind when we think uh, why doesn't the average American comb through the New York Times like, uh, like I do every morning? Um, well, the reason is because it comes easy to me because I've built up decades of experience of background knowledge reading about these stories. And so my ability to assimilate new information in the domain of politics is quite easy. But if uh, you were to ask a medical doctor who has expertise in anatomy and surgery or whatever his or her specialty is, hey, tell me about the intricacies of the American, uh, you know, how a bill becomes the, uh, a law or um, the campaign finance system or about the party system or about various other aspects. They would struggle just the way I would struggle with a medical textbook. So the, the point here is simply that when you have expertise or even kind of uh, uh, just something approaching expertise in a subject that you have acquired over time, when you then think that other people should be able to do it as easily as you do, uh, which is to say acquire new information in that domain, it's, actu it's actually asking quite a bit. So segueing to your example, Elizabeth, about climate change. I mean, I, climate change is very important um, and I do know something about it, but I'm not a climatologist. And so therefore my ability to absorb detailed scientific evidence about climate change is going to be limited. And, um, and if the article is presented in a technical, overly technical uh, fashion, it can be daunting and even uh, discouraging for folks such as ourselves, even though we do care about climate change and because it does have implications for us, but it can be depressing, it can be daunting, it can be overly technical, it can be off-putting. And so it might therefore just be easier to read something else. Yeah, and so there's, so I talked to another professor and they sort of, they, their whole, opinion on the um, informed citizen debate was that it's of it's fine for Americans or citizens in general to be less invested in politics or informed about them and he sort of and he compared it to a plumber situation but when you hire a plumber and then they come in and fix your toilet you might ask you know what was wrong with the toilet but you don't really 
dig any deeper because it's sort of dirty, a dirty topic and no one wants to learn about toilets. And he compared that to when citizens vote for politicians, they vote for them and then those politicians, you know, make their big decisions so that citizens don't have to think about all that messy, complicated stuff. And so I just want to, you know, as another political scientist, what are your, what's your take on this, on this comparison? I mean, it's a, it's an, the, the analogy does have some merit, but it, um, it, like all analogies, it breaks down at some point when you start to scratch beneath the surface. Um, because of course, as a plumber or as an auto mechanic, I use the example of being a doctor. I mean, we live in a complicated society where none of us are specialists in everything or even most things, or in some cases, maybe nothing. So do I know how to change a tire? No. Do I know how the engine of my car works? Nope. I don't know that either. Uh, do I know how to fix the plumbing in my house if it goes haywire? Not really. Um, I don't have the expertise to do that. So I can go on and on areas in which I don't have expertise and I don't need to because we have what's known as division of labor where there are other people who can handle that. Now, the problem of course, is that in the context, even, even our democracy, we don't all descend on Washington, uh, all 300 plus million people in the country to make decisions about how the government will work. Instead, what we do is we elect other people who are our representatives and then they go to Washington or to our state capital or wherever, and then they execute our interests and desires and, uh, you know, and uh, our particular perspectives. Uh, the problem is that in democracy, unlike with plumbing, unlike with um, any other endeavor I could mention, there is, a, there is a role for ordinary citizens to play. There's no role for ordinary citizens in plumbing. I call the plumber, the plumber fixes the leaky faucet. Um, I don't need to know anything beyond who to call. But for democracy, it isn't simply we pick representatives and then we can turn our attention to something else. We have these things periodically that are called elections, which require us to evaluate the performance of those elected officials. And in order to evaluate their performance, we need some information. It isn't simply a matter of delegating to uh, representatives because the representatives have to be evaluated at election time. And in order to do that, you have to have some information. You don't have to have complete information. You don't need to know uh, everything that the representatives know, but you need to know enough to know whether they have carried out their duties as they have promised or consistent with your preferences. And that's how the analogy of, with all due respect of my colleague who you made reference to a moment ago, Elizabeth, this is where I would part company with him because him or her, because uh, unlike with a plumbing analogy in democracy and even in representative democracies, the voters are not just um, passive observers. They actually have an active role to play. Yeah, that's actually, when he was talking about the analogy, that's kind of what I was thinking in my head where I was thinking, well, in a democracy, citizens kind of do play a part, maybe not a big part, but I mean, this like, it still depends on them being somewhat knowledgeable. Exactly. So there, you know, and, and we have to calibrate that expectation. It would not be realistic to expect all of us to become experts on foreign policy or budget policy or various other aspects of government. And that's partly why we have a party, what's known as a party system. So the players in the game, as it were, the candidates, they come and they go, they change over time pretty rapidly. Uh, but the parties are supposed to be enduring. So the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, uh, especially over the last, say, I guess, uh, about 60 years or so, 
there now those parties of course go back both of those two parties go back at least as far as the civil war when i say 60 years or so i mean that their current ideological orientation was mostly cemented in the 1960s uh 60s and 70s for the most part um without going into too much history here so the point is that a lot we can't expect people to have a great deal of detailed knowledge about most uh policy matters but they should know and we would hope that they would be able to learn that uh for example the republican party generally supports small government and uh you know uh places more emphasis on unfettered uh capitalism more laissez-faire capitalism and fewer regulations Whereas the Democratic Party uh, tends to favor more expansive government and with more regulations, more limits on, say, free market uh, activity. I think that's a fair neutral description of the two parties. Uh, the voters need to know that because candidates who then assign a particular partisan label to themselves can be evaluated, even if you don't know anything else about what they did in Washington or what they did in the state capitol. Well, they say that they are Republicans or they say they are Democrats and that should convey some knowledge. So we can at least have a minimal level of expectation about the sorts of things voters should know if only because they should know something about the parties which don't change very much over time. Yeah, and yeah, being a non-informed non-informed voters also have a big problem globally, but I know that for America in particular, we also have a problem with low voter turnout. And as I kind of researched this area, I also, I also discovered that some countries, they have compulsory voting laws or have experimented with it in the past. And with, when you talk about compulsory voting, it's sort of a debate of whether voting is a civic right or is it a civic duty? You know, should it be mandatory or should it remain optional? And I was just wondering, you know, as a political scientist, where do you sort of lean on the debate? Yeah, your, your research is actually on target. There, it, the America uh, among advanced uh, democracies usually does relatively poorly in terms of turnout. Now this last election in 2020 was uh, really smashed all records. So of course it happened in the midst of a pandemic and, and various other things that made the stakes a little higher, but generally Americans actually don't turn out as high as they do in other Western democracies or industrialized democracies. And why is that? Um, and you're asking, there are various things that other places do that we don't do, like compulsory voting. We don't do that in the United States um, and various other things that we could do. So do what is my position on that? I don't actually have a strong opposition to compulsory voting. I mean, whether or not the practical uh, likelihood of that being enacted in the United States is low is for the moment not the point. Would I have an objection to it personally? Not really. I mean, in most countries where it's instituted, as far as I know, it is mandatory and means there is a kind of a minimal, mostly symbolic fine if you don't vote. So the goal is to try to encourage people to participate. In the United States, uh, in part because of the, the federalist system we have, meaning that we have lo various local levels of government. So we have the federal government, of course, but we also have various, uh, which is to say 50 different state governments and then we have local uh, uh, governments as well. But more relevant is that the, the particulars about how and when and under what circumstances we get to vote are mostly delegated to the states. So we don't actually have one voting rule in the United States. We have 50, uh, at least 50. And so um, the, there's much that can be said here, but I'll just cut to the chase and say the following. 
we only have two major political parties in the United States and under some circumstances, both historically and uh, contemporaneously, uh, one or more of those parties have had an interest in discouraging uh, participation. And so as a consequence, even though everyone might agree in principle that more voting is a good thing, as a practical matter, some political parties and their uh, representatives aren't so sure that that's the case. After all, if they represent a district or a jurisdiction where most of the people in that jurisdiction support party X and they belong to party Y, maybe it's not such a great thing that everybody gets to vote if you're members of party Y. You actually would rather that not be the case. Now, is that the way we would want it to be? Probably not. Is that the way it should be in a functioning, healthy democracy? Uh, absolutely not. But are there incentives for a minority party in a particular jurisdiction uh, to try to discourage voting? Uh, absolutely, yes. That has been true throughout American history. Yeah, and so there's, there's only one more question, and it's what new topics do you want to discover or research as you um, continue what, to work as a professor? What new topics do I want to focus on? Yeah, are there any new ones? Um, well, you know, I've been doing a lot of work recently on, uh, on uh, economic inequality. And uh, so on its face, economic inequality isn't necessarily related to the matters of politics, but in fact, they can be quite related because we know that one of the factors that encourages uh, participation is of course um, economic resources, whether you have them or not. And in the United States, economic uh, inequality has been growing. And so this has implications for uh, the stability of our democracy. And it also has kind of normative, what we would call normative implications, whether it's the way we think the society ought to be with an increasingly uh, narrow group of people possessing a larger amount of the resources in the society. There's something un unstable and maybe even unsustainable about that. So uh, I've been doing a lot of work on that. I, I'm encouraged and interested in um, trying to become more informed about that and mostly trying to study what happens when Americans are exposed to information about levels of inequality in society. Does it, does it change their attitudes? Does it prompt them to do something they might not have done otherwise? Because again, it's not simply that we have a grossly unequal society and that we have a grossly unequal society that is getting more unequal all the time. Both of those things are true and undeniably true. It's also true, however, that a lot of people don't know it. They don't know just how unequal the society is. Unequal in terms of income, unequal in terms of wealth. And the thing that I'm studying, or at least trying to study, is what happens if people do start to learn? Does it, does it change anything? That's a really interesting topic to cover about you know, what information will motivate people to take action or change the behavior. Yeah, I'm starting to become more and more immersed in this, Elizabeth, and it's, um, it's clear that the world doesn't quite work in a straightforward way. We all, of course, know we're having this conversation, unfortunately, in the midst of a you know, pandemic, of which there is considerable information about there, about the utility of social distancing, masks, vaccines, et cetera. And so you would think that, well, obviously we all know what you should do in order not to put yourself at risk in the middle of a pandemic. But we already know, of course, and your listeners will know as well, that not everyone does do the sorts of things that they need to do 
in the midst of a pandemic in terms of masks, in terms of social distancing, in terms of getting a vaccine. So that's not to say that our fellow citizens are necessarily irrational, although some of their behavior might in fact be irrational. What it is to say is simply that it's clear that providing people with information such as if you don't want to get sick and hospitalized and ultimately die, you probably should take a vaccine. It's clear that providing that information in and of itself is not sufficient for at least everybody. So uh, it begs the question, well, if that doesn't always work, why not? And if that doesn't work, what are the ways in which you can persuade people? I don't have easy answers for that, but it is something I'm interested in pursuing. But that was my last question. Thank you so much for going to this interview. And I, I, really, I wish you luck with your studies. It sounds really interesting. Well, thank you. It's, uh, you know, this is, a, I think, the second time we've had a conversation. And I'm, in both cases, I've been very impressed by you, Elizabeth. So I'm hopeful that this conversation will be of use to others who hear it. But uh, I would be remiss if I didn't conclude by saying that I'm impressed by your, your knowledge, your curiosity and your passion for politics. So I would certainly want to encourage you to pursue those moving forward. And uh, if there's anything I can do to assist you, certainly feel free to reach out, but, but I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Professor Hutchings. Okay, you take care of yourself. You too.